Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Dorian Linsky. Anti-Semitism was one of the most painful issues for the Labour Party during Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. Dealing with it was one of Keir Starmer's key pledges as leader. But the backlash to the expulsion of groups such as Labour Against the Witch Hunt shows there's a problem with deep roots which requires serious analysis, which is where today's guests come in. Daniel Randall is a railway worker, trade unionist and socialist, whose book Confronting Anti-Semitism on the Left, Arguments for Socialists, is out now. Keith Kahn-Harris is a sociologist whose book Strange Hate, Anti-Semitism, Racism and the Limits of Diversity, came out in 2019. Hi, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks for having us. Daniel, the the issue of anti-Semitism on the left, like I say, went mainstream during the Corbyn years, but it's certainly not new. What was your experience of it in the movement prior to 2015? Um, Well, I mean, as you say, it's not something that's new at all. And I think the increased focus on it in the Corbyn years really represented a kind of dragging into the light of something that had been festering for a long time. Um, And it was certainly something that one encountered in various forms, for example, in um, the Occupy movement following the 2008 crash and um, in a kind of earlier phase of anti-capitalist and anti-globalization struggle um, in the late 90s. Um, and also kind of in and around um, aspects of the Palestine solidarity movement. I think what is a bit newer and in some senses uh, a a potential source of hope in in what's otherwise quite a bleak landscape is that for many, many years, those of us who had an analysis of a phenomenon we called left anti-Semitism and and acknowledged that it existed and wanted to confront it, that was a very marginal position. I think it has become slightly less marginal now, and there's a greater acceptance that this phenomenon is real and does need specific analysis. We all know that the most sort of vicious, historically long-standing form of anti-Semitism comes from the far right, and there, there is sort of generally consensus on that. But apart from that kind of difference of the, of the use of violence, how is the left-wing version distinct, and are there still areas of overlap? I think what's kind of particular and distinct about anti-Semitism as it's encountered on the left, is that it's not necessarily kind of racialized um, in the way that far-right anti-Semitism tends to be. It's not necessarily, and in my view, often most of the time isn't, based on designating Jews as a sort of racialized other. What it uh, foregrounds and bases itself on is what's been what's been referred to as the kind of anti-hegemonic character of anti-Semitism, which means that you know anti-Semitism um, isn't just sort of Jew hatred, it's, it's a kind of explanatory narrative for how the world is organised, which purports to identify a kind of socially manipulative power, which is coded as Jewish in some way. And anti-Semitism on the left particularly foregrounds this aspect. It's about the identification of this socially manipulative, oppressive, exploitative power, whether that's associated with the kind of primitive themes of Jewish finance or slightly more contemporary themes where Zionism and Israel might kind of stand in for that sort of socially manipulative power. Um, that, that's really what's distinct about left anti-Semitism and what differentiates it from the kind of racialized anti-Semitism of the far right. I would say in addition to what, uh, to, to what Daniel uh, said, that you do often find well-worn anti-Semitic tropes uh, often of, of quite great antiquity within left anti-Semitism too. So one of the things you sometimes found um, in the Labour Party under Corbyn was tropes about the crucifixion of Jeremy Corbyn, 
compared to the crucifixion of another JC. And that shows how uh, febrile anti-Semitism can be, that tropes can start in one place and end up in another place. Because like most other kinds of hatred, anti-Semitism is opportunistic. It makes use of discourses that, if you like, are in the ether, uh, whether they originate from the right or the left or from somewhere else entirely. Keith, explicit anti-Semitism is one part of it. And there's certain um, cartoons and statements that we can think of where it's pretty undeniable. But the denial that it exists at all on the left or that it is very important seems to me to have become an even bigger problem. Is there, uh, I don't want to say that all denial is a form of anti-Semitism, but, but I mean, do we have to think of a form of denial, which is, I think, where someone like Chris Williamson initially got into trouble. He's obviously become rather more explicit since then. But is the f- a form of denial in itself is a form of anti-Semitism? Well, it's certainly experienced by many Jews as indistinguishable from anti-Semitism. One term that has sometimes been used in some Jewish circles is gaslighting that complaining that something has happened and being told that, no, it's all in your imagination, um, causes real wounds. And whether technically one classes denial of anti-Semitism as anti-Semitism itself is in a way moot, because ultimately the problem with anti-Semitism, or one of the major problems with anti-Semitism, is the harm that it causes to Jews. And in that respect, denial is just as harmful as anti-Semitism itself. But where it becomes much more complicated is that it is not sustainable to say that denial of anti-Semitism can never be true, or that all accusations of anti-Semitism are necessarily correct. But what we have here is a situation that has become a a kind of zero-sum game that rather than being able to discuss these things carefully and with nuance, there's a kind of retreat to the barricades a lot of the time. And that's one of the reasons why the, the problem that is, as it has emerged in the last few years, has, has got more and more serious and, and has seen battle lines uh, being drawn to such an extent that it's very difficult to see how one actually moves uh, forward from that. And I mean, one of the fundamental precepts of anti-racism is that the people who are the victims of racism get to define it, should identify it, should be taken seriously, um, and that you don't simply believe the people who are outside that group or perhaps a minority within that group. And that, I think, would be accepted with any other form of, of prejudice. Why is it not accepted on the left with Jews? I think... It is accepted to a degree. The issue is that, and this is one of the reasons why the the anti-Semitism crisis in the Labour Party became so incredibly intractable, is that Jews themselves don't agree on anti-Semitism. So whenever some Jews say this is anti-Semitic, you will find other Jews who will say that it is not, with the exception of the most antediluvian, if you like, genocidal forms of anti-Semitism, where there is more or less a consensus about that. I mean, I don't know many Jews who deny that the Nazis were anti-Semitic. So what end up, ends up happening is that um, d- 
denial of anti-Semitism and accusation of anti-Semitism becomes a Jew versus Jew conflict. And that is a problem that we are starting to see outside of anti-Semitism in other um, controversies about racism as well. Because we are now living in a world where everyone has a platform, minorities within minority communities are often highly vocal uh, about defending at least some people accused of racism from accusations of racism. So that leads to uh, not exactly an unprecedented situation, but a situation where old principles of anti-racism start to show their age and start to become less useful in knowing how to deal with intra-minority conflict. And what often ends up happening is that conflicts within minorities are kind of leveraged, if you like, by external actors. And we saw that on both sides of the Labour Party anti-Semitism crisis. It was politically useful for certain kinds of Jews making accusations of anti-Semitism to be supported by some figures on the right who were not Jewish. And it was also politically useful for some figures on the left to defend some people who were accused of anti-Semitism by leveraging a particular kind of Jewish opinion there. So what happens is that you have people who are not Jewish stirring the pot and validating uh, or, or delegitimizing particular kinds of Jews as is convenient to them. One of the most unseemly aspects of the period we've just come through was this this kind of mutual tokenizing where both uh, the kind of extremes on both sides of the debate, i.e. the people who um, wanted to condemn the entire left as sort of irredeemably anti-Semitic and the, the people who wanted to deny the possibility of, of left anti-Semitism altogether would kind of joust. One approach I've tried to take in the book I've written is to say, look, actually, for the, the left as a movement, we need to have our own critical analysis of anti-Semitism as an ideological phenomenon because it has a particular and distinct um, potential to kind of toxify left-wing politics. So, you know, as a movement, we have a responsibility to confront, critique and overcome it because of the ideological threat it represents to us and to our politics. Wherever the kind of balance of opinion might be within the Jewish community, we, you know, we, we as a movement, as a left, both Jewish and non-Jewish, need to have that distinct analysis because of the ideological threat it poses to us. Well, um, I mean, this brings me to, there's a lot of history uh, in your book, and you talk a lot about the famous line that anti-Semitism is the socialism of fools. Um, and then you elaborate on that. But first, can you briefly explain who said that and, and what he meant by it? The phrase's origins, to the extent that they can be traced, um, are in a speech given by a Austrian uh, kind of liberal politician called Ferdinand Kronletter, um, and he described anti-Semitism as being the socialism of the, the idiot of Vienna, roughly equivalent to kind of the village idiot. And I think his intent there was just to sort of um, designate anti-Semitism as a kind of stupid idea. And certainly the modern usage of the term the socialism of fools or the socialism of the idiot, you know, broadly has that same intent. It's, it's to designate the idea that anti-Semitism is, is a kind of foolish position. In the book, I, I go into a bit of detail about 
the fact that when that phrase anti-Semitism is the socialism of fools was kind of picked up by the left of the time, primarily the, the, the social democratic movement in, in Austria and Germany, it was given a slightly different twist, which I think has perhaps more negative lessons than, than positive in terms of how we on the left confront anti-Semitism. The twist it was given was to sort of suggest that the anti-Semites were almost kind of halfway to socialist good sense. You know, they'd identified a part of the problem, the figure of the Jewish capitalist, this nefarious conspiracy of um, elite financiers. They'd kind of got halfway there and all they needed to do was um, extend that analysis a bit further. So it was sort of almost accepting the idea that anti-Semitism does have some anti-hegemonic element that could be potentially developed or, or, or resolved in a socialist direction rather than confronting the analysis as such. What's important to sort of understand about the discourse at that time is that the, the figure of the Jewish capitalist that was being critiqued in this in this kind of would-be radical, would-be anti-capitalist anti-Semitism, you know, that's not a capitalist who just happens to be Jewish and might as well be of any other ethnicity. You know, that refers to a kind of specific type. In that kind of narrative, capitalism itself is coded as a kind of specifically Jewish endeavor. Um, so that analysis is it's obviously incorrect. It's, it's disempowering and it's a gateway to bigotry. Um, and I think that the modern lesson for us there is that, you know, when we encounter analyses on the left that trace the source of social ills to, you know, Soros or Rothschild or cavals of elite financiers, it's not good enough to just say, don't foreground the Jewish financiers or name some non-Jewish financiers as well for balance. You know, the problem is with that whole narrative. You know, it's an inaccurate, disempowering and implicitly bigoted narrative that needs challenging as such. I mean, I would argue that someone like David Miller actually isn't an anti-Zionist in the sense that what he is opposing is a product of his own invention. Yes. It, it's not really Zionism at all. Yes. It's this totalizing um, force that is entirely homogeneous, that corrupts anything even vaguely associated with it, and, it, and within which the, the various currents within it mean nothing because it is all one thing. And you could extend that, across, and the analogy there is to capitalism as well. You could say that the sort of uh, anti, uh, the figure of the Jewish capitalist, it's not that it's as 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 Daniel's saying, it's not that it's it's a reasonable critique, but just too limited. It's that it's not capitalism at all. It misunderstands what capitalism is, and doesn't help in actually fighting it. So one of the ironies here, what I would like to have seen um, in David Miller, is for is for actual anti-Zionists who understand what Zionism is to actually say to David Miller, "You are not an anti-Zionist." I mean, I suppose what the, what the big question, I saw this just uh, yesterday um, on Twitter, someone talking about David Miller going, you know, for God's sake, anti-Zionism is not the same as anti-Semitism. Zionism is a political ideology. It's not a, you know, it's not an ethnicity. You know, you've seen this, we've seen this a thousand times. What, in a, in a nutshell, is the problem with this defence? That, that Well, one of the issues is that it's partly because it, as I said, skates over all the tensions and conflicts within Zionism itself. But more than that, it also avoids a very hard question, which is this complete distinction that is made between political ideology and group identity is not sustainable. Because not just for Jews, but for many other ethnicities or ethno-religions, ethno as I would class Judaism as, 
um, are intrinsically linked to particular kinds of political ideology. Whether one likes it or not, the majority of Jews uh, in this country and worldwide do believe at the very least in the principle of a Jewish state. And the majority would also define themselves as Zionists, although what they would see as Zionism varies considerably. And this is something that the left has not really been able to confront very well. And as I argue in my book, in a way, the controversy over this is a harbinger for controversies to come, because we're already starting to see, for example, British Hindus being treated in a similar way to British Jews, in the sense that there is a reluctance to acknowledge that many Hindus see as part of their identities particular kinds of political commitments. Uh, and certainly many Muslims are similar to that. So this idea that politics completely froze, is entirely disconnected to, um, uh, to group identities is empirically wrong, whether one would like it to be the case or not. And this year, um, Tarek Ali made a speech um, at a Palestine Solidarity rally, blaming anti-Semitism entirely on Israel and saying that if Israel behaved better or no longer existed or whatever, there would be no anti-Semitism. How good is the Palestine Solidarity Movement at drawing red lines and ostracising anti-Semites when, when sentiments like this are not uncommon? I think it's been historically, unfortunately, very poor. But I think it's important to make a distinction here um, between Palestinians themselves and people in the Western left and it's often from the latter um, that the problem comes because one of the things that I think has unfortunately been the case is that not just Israel has become uh, something bigger than actually a single nation state, but the Palestinians have become something bigger than a subjugated people amongst many other subjugated people, their liberation becomes key to the liberation of the whole world. So in some respects, they become instrumentalized as well. And that I don't think is helpful for Palestinians themselves, although it's understandable why many Palestinians will be grateful support from whatever quarter, because they are, after all, a people that is oppressed and is subjugated. Um, but it's ultimately not helpful to the conflict, to the situation on the ground, when Israelis and Palestinians, Jews and Muslims, become a symbol for something bigger than they actually are. Moving on, I'm, I'm not sure if you've, uh, if you've both read David Badil's sort of recent pamphlet, Jews Don't Count, but he argues that anti-Semites see Jews as an ethnic minority, whether they like it or not. So it makes sense to ask why they don't have those sort of anti-racist protections. And Daniel, in your book, you've got a chapter about, you know, why, why you think it is sort of counterproductive or problematic to equate anti-Semitism with racism because of perhaps its particular characteristics. What, what, why is that? And do you have any sympathy with Badil's argument? Well, I mean, look, I, I wouldn't want to bend the stick too far in the other direction here and situating an analysis of anti-Semitism within a broader anti-racist analysis is really important, including in terms of constructing or reconstructing solidarity between Jews and other historically racialized peoples. I think why I, th why I 
I'm a bit reticent to to just collapse anti-Semitism on the left, particularly into that kind of overall uh, uh, category of, of racism. Is that you know I think it does have some distinctions. As I said before, you know I I think the people on the left who hold uh, the views or aspects of the views we're talking about, you know, they don't see Jews as a racialized other. And in fact, you know, many of them are sincere anti-racists who who um, you know, would reject the idea of kind of racialized othering um, altogether. And I think attempting to approach the issue in the debate by saying, no, you know, you've really got some kind of subliminal repressed racialized antipathy to Jews is not really helpful. And it's, and it's sort of better to approach it on the level of what's going on ideologically, what are the sort of political roots of what's going on here. So yeah, I mean, look, clearly, there are significant um, parallels and commonalities between anti-Semitism and other forms of racism. Most anti-Semitism historically definitely racialized, but there are distinctions as well. I think there are there are also some kind of ideological distinctions in terms of what we were talking about before, in terms of anti-Semitism's character. You know, it, ha- it, it has a sort of ideological character, which is quite developed and sophisticated. It's not just a simplistic binary which says Jews bad, non-Jews good. Um, so in that sense... It does represent something distinct, and uh, the American civil rights and anti-racist activist Eric K. Ward has a, has an interesting formulation on this when he he writes about anti-Semitism providing the theoretical core of white nationalism, which is a kind of interesting way of looking at it. And that's not about saying anti-Semitism is worse than other forms of bigotry or racism or more deserving of condemnation or confrontation, but I think it is just about recognizing that there are some specificities and distinctions and attempting to approach things in a way that blurs them out is going to obscure more than it clarifies. I think one of the things that I've been struck by in a lot of these um, debates about anti-Semitism on the left online is that one trope is Jews are not a race, Jews are not an ethnicity, they are a religion. And as a religion, they are um, they are open to full criticism with no special protection Allowed, and certainly that means that they, their, their perceptions, their, their ability and right to a nation is therefore necessarily illegitimate. And I think that that stems from a confusion about what Jews are, which is based on um, a, a kind of ignorance about what the categories we use to order the world really mean. The problem is, is that the concept of religion is not a good concept. It's a concept that fits, if it fits anything, it fits Protestantism. The idea that ethnicity is something different from religion uh, really only holds in in very specific contexts, largely Western contexts. The idea of race is itself a fiction, which many people on the left would agree with in theory, but seem to act as though it is actually a real thing. And that difficulty of placing Jews means that there is a widespread incoherence in the left as how to treat Jews. So often two kinds of Jews are treated as, as legitimate. One is strictly orthodox Jews, particularly those who have uh, who reject Zionism. And the other is entirely secular Jews who are on the left and reject Zionism as well. But the fact is, is that Jewish identity is incredibly various and incredibly complex and doesn't fit easily 
into these categories. And I always think that one of the things that the left should do is to interrogate those categories. And one of the depressing things I find is the smugness with which, uh, which these categories are treated as if they were real. Daniel, I want to talk a bit about Labour specifically. I was one of those people over the last few years who was just sort of desperate for, for Corbyn to get a handle on this. But, but reading your book, I wondered whether, you know, that was a sort of misguided hope because you got Andrew Murray, later a Corbyn advisor, uh, you quote him reading out an address from Hezbollah at, at Stop the War demonstration in 2006. Uh, Corbyn himself was on camera repeating a conspiracy theory about the hand of Israel. Many of the people expelled for anti-Semitism were his sort of long-time friends and political allies. Because of the the sort of the, the depth and the complexity of this of this problem on the left, do you think he was fundamentally incapable of addressing it, and that it would it was it was just not going to be dealt with while he was there? Well, I mean, look, I don't want to attempt to kind of psychoanalyze his um, kind of capability to, to to grasp the problem or change his mind or or, or anything like that. And I also should say that I think one can greatly overemphasize his personal role and sort of responsibility. Um, you know, and I, and I do think it was the case that what is a very long running, old, quite complex ideological phenomenon was sort of, you know, he was made the sort of totem, he was made kind of totemically culpable for it by people who were opposed to his, his wider political project. That's certainly the case. It's not helpful to kind of reproduce that frame. Having said that, it is undeniably true that um, Jeremy Corbyn got his political formation, at least in part, in a milieu where these sort of, you know, these approaches to anti-imperialism, for example, the kind of what I describe in the book as a, as a campist approach to, to anti-imperialism, which is about this splitting of the world into these into these kind of two discrete camps and, and Israel and, and Zionism and anyone with any affinity with it on any level kind of belongs in the camp of reaction. I think the other thing in in kind of Corbyn's own approach and in, in, and in kind of Corbynism more generally, which made it difficult to really grapple with this properly, is that there's a certain kind of moralistic element to, to Corbyn's politics. And, you know, that has something to recommend it. And I think that's something that people find quite attractive and appealing about him, which I sort of understand. But, you know, in a way, he does sort of approach politics in terms of goodies and baddies. You know, there are the there are the sort of goodies who are the downtrodden, disadvantaged and oppressed, and there are the baddies, which are the oppressors and the exploiters. And that's okay as a sort of starting instinct, but that's not enough for, for, for a kind of approach to politics. And I think if that's your basic analytical frame, then as Keith has, has sort of pointed out, and as, as Keith you know, goes into in his work, it's, it's quite difficult to sort of situate Jews within that, particularly in Britain, where there's been a you know a high degree of kind of social mobility and so on, so I think all of that did mean that it was going to be difficult for a leadership, not entirely but kind of substantially conditioned by those politics, to um, really grapple with this issue in the way that it needed to be grappled with. I would add to that that one of the things that the Corbyn years showed is that anti-racism should not be an identity. We had not just from Corbyn but from many other people saying, "I am a lifelong anti-racist." Mm. To me, one of the thing, one of the lessons is that anti-racism is a lifelong struggle. It is hard. It is difficult. It involves confronting one's own subliminal or not so subliminal prejudices. But because 
it was often treated, particularly by Corbyn, but by others as well, as a journey to which one could arrive and then stay an anti-racism for uh, an anti-racist forever. And that is at the heart of your identity. That was dangerous. Um, so what do we know, I suppose, on a practical note? Daniel, you caution against the, the purely managerial solution of expelling anti-Semites, the Labour Party. You say, and this is the point of your book, that education and persuasion are essential. I mean, I still think it is essential to kick out people like Chris Williamson, groups like Labour Against the Witch Hunt. So just to clarify, are you saying that, it, that it's not enough or that it is unhelpful in itself to, to, to expel these people? I mean, it's look, it's obviously necessary for there to be a degree of kind of case-by-case judgment here. I'm certainly not opposed from the point of view of absolute principle to there ever being any disciplinary sanction. You know, I mean, I think Chris Williamson actually left the Labour Party before he could be expelled. You know, I would have definitely had a hard time opposing his expulsion. So it's not that I'm opposed to those kind of measures in absolutely every case. But I think in terms of a sort of general approach to the issue, foregrounding procedural, administrative, bureaucratic, disciplinary measures, which treat this problem as if it's fundamentally a matter of kind of personal conduct or behavior that could be sort of legislated against in some way, really fundamentally misunderstands what we're dealing with here. You know, this is um, an ideological phenomenon, and it has to be confronted first and foremost at the level of ideas. Look, I'm not so naive as to suggest that people who, you know, that people who've got who have got their entire political formation in movements and tendencies on the left where, where these views are completely uh, prevalent and unchallenged that you know all of them um, are going to have some epiphanal uh, realization because they read my book or Keith's book or anything like that I'm not suggesting that for a second but I think the much larger constituency on the left on the left of the Labour Party and the left more generally is of people whose ideas are not fully formed who might hold some aspects of some of the ideas that we're talking about where they might be in tension with others who might have some underdeveloped analyses of capitalism that possibly tend towards a kind of conspiracist um, approach that might have a somewhat campist view of world politics but but whose ideas aren't fully formed you know to me that that's the majority those are the people who are reachable by campaigns of political education and what i'd like to see the labor party doing is getting serious about that kind of education. I mean, it's worth noting this, you know, this is part of a wider problem, which is that political activity in the Labour Party has essentially shrunk down to just electoral activity. So there's no culture really of organising political education about anything, anti-Semitism or anything else. Um, So for me, the effort to conduct this kind of political educational campaign against anti-Semitism on the left and in the Labour Party has to be part of a wider reinvigoration of a culture of political education that sees political engagement and activism, not just as being about knocking on doors, delivering leaflets, um, you know, uh, uh, harvesting electoral data, but is about ideological engagement and a sort of totalizing project to develop a, a, you know, a worldview and then to, 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 to seek to, to kind of act on, on, on the basis of it. And, and Keith, have you found people reachable? Because you'd say you, you take a sort of a similar approach about getting people to, to sort of think about this stuff and, and hopefully change minds, if not at the extreme. I think it is possible with some people. I think a lot of people drifted into either tolerating or reproducing anti-Semitic tropes or denying anti-Semitism. They they drifted into it through a desperation for change, a, a sense that, that Corbyn was, if you like, the last best hope. 
And I certainly have seen, for example, people retweeting Rothschild tropes who are horrified uh, when you point out what that actually means. But anti-racist education isn't simply a matter of education. You educate the educatable. I think the key thing, and, and actually Daniel and I were discussing this on Twitter a little while ago, the key thing at the moment is identifying those who are irredeemable and those who are educatable, if that's a word. And it's it's often not clear who is who. And certainly at the moment when the Labour Party is split and a war in itself uh, over, over other issues as well, it's exceptionally difficult to do. I'll just add one more thing, which is the state of political education is part of a wider hollowing out of political parties, not just Labour. And it began well before Corbyn. In fact, you could trace it. Some of the worst damage was done, in fact, under new Labour. However, I don't think we can go back to the past, even if the past was that good, which I'm not sure about. Uh, we have to think about how political education works in a febrile uh, online atmosphere where people, I think it's worth reminding you, people are scared at the moment because it is scary stuff is happening in the world and particularly at the moment. And in those situations, it can be very, very difficult to, to have a more nuanced educative approach. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Daniel Randall and Keith Carn-Harris. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Confronting Antisemitism on the Left is published by No Pazaran Media and Strange Hate by Repeater Books. They're both valuable, eye-opening books. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please post about it or tell a friend. Take care and see you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>